Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32. As he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you, did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first son and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, We're in the middle of a series, working our way through Matthew's gospel. Matthew has been teaching us for the last year or so about what he calls the kingdom of heaven. uh, Heaven coming down to earth in the person and work of Jesus. And uh, when Jesus wants to tell uh, a little bit more about the kingdom, when he wants to explain it and how it works and how you get into it and how you experience it, he tells stories like the one that Susan just read. And so we've been looking at the series of parables throughout Matthew's gospel around the theme of the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Now, we have to situate ourselves in Matthew's gospel in order to understand why Jesus is telling uh, this particular parable. Uh, in other words, the parable isn't there in the abstract, which is why, if you've noticed, for the last few weeks, we've always kind of included the, the preceding dialogue that happens that kind of occasions the parables Jesus teaches. In this case, Jesus has come to Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover. Uh, and all of this that we just saw in Matthew 21 is probably happening on Monday or Tuesday of the last week of his life. He's come with his disciples into Jerusalem. On Thursday night, they will celebrate the Last Supper together. On Friday early morning, he will be arrested, condemned, and executed. And all throughout Matthew's gospel, there's a tension that's been mounting, and it's beginning to boil over. And it really comes to a head here in Jerusalem as Jesus begins to teach in the temple courts. That Ever since coming to Jerusalem, Jesus has been um, teaching and, and preaching, and the result has been a great deal of opposition from, we, we notice here in verse 23, these characters, the chief priests and the elders. Uh, these were the spiritual leaders in charge of Israel in that day. They were the, the temple officials. They, they were the people that, the, you know, they were the guys that the people looked to kind of as the the ones who were the spiritual leaders, and they really didn't like Jesus very much. They're angry at him, uh, and shortly they will execute a, a plot to kill him. But what we know from reading Matthew is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the king that they've so desperately longed for, and so there's an irony in the way they react to him. 
And he's been, to this point, ministering kind of in the backwater towns of Israel. He's been kind of hanging out in places where few people who have Messiah aspirations would actually go. And the result has been a growing crowd of followers. But here's the issue. Unlikely followers. The people that have been gathered to him are fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes and all other sorts of, quote-unquote, sinners that have kind of begun to journey with Jesus as he heads toward Jerusalem. And he has a reputation before he even gets there. He's notorious for the company that he keeps. And here he is finally coming to Jerusalem to engage with the theologians and the spiritual elites, the people who have studied diligently and are experts in matters of religion, but they don't receive him. They're angry. They, they hate him. They plot to kill him. They've studied about his coming. They've prayed for his coming. They long for his coming, and here he is, but they don't welcome him. And so this is the dynamic, okay? This is the dynamic that sets up the the, the irony uh, that the parable is really built around. And it's just this, that the outcast and the sinners and the rejects believe in him and follow him, but the religious leaders and the religious elite despise him. That those you would expect to be on the inside of a move of God are really on the outside looking in, and they fail to embrace him. And that those that you would think would be excluded are the ones that get included. And so it's really upside down. There's, there's, a real, there's an irony that's set in place. And I think it sets a precedent that we should pay attention to. And it's just this, that often the least likely candidates make the best followers of Jesus. And the people who show the most potential sometimes prove the least productive. There's something about the way the kingdom works that is being revealed to us. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, you'll probably remember this, not many noble, not many wise, not many rich, not many powerful find themselves in the kingdom, but the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised, and those that are not are the ones that get in. And so, again, many who expect to be insiders miss it, and many who expect to be outsiders get in, and that's what's happening in the Gospels. And it's still happening that way. And so Jesus in Matthew 21 and 22 tells three parables in succession to explain this reality of why it is that those that seem to be uh, the ones that should be left out are in fact the ones that are included and the ones that come to him in, in force. Those that should be included or that consider themselves already included are the ones that somehow find themselves on the outside looking in. This parable this morning is about two sons, one who really doesn't show much promise but surprisingly proves to be very faithful and one who promises a great deal but never gets around to producing anything. And so let's look at this parable this morning together, starting, you know, in verse 28 down through verse 32. And we want to see three things uh, from the parable as it relates to us. First, we want to just look at the two brothers and contrast them. Secondly, we want to ask what the difference is between the two of them. We're going to see that fundamentally the difference is repentance. And so If the difference is repentance, then the third thing we want to do is we want to see where the power for repentance comes from. So those are our three points. Let's look at the two brothers. Let's look at the difference between them, which we're going to see to be repentance. And then let's talk about where the power for repentance comes from, okay? Uh, Starting with just this, these two brothers. Now, let's look here because this is fun and interesting. Uh, Their father of these two boys is presumably the owner of the vineyard. And so it's strange in the first place that he would ask them to go and work in the vineyard. Uh, They would have people that they paid to do that. This is out of the ordinary, most of the scholars say. So the first son, you'll see there, responds to his father's instruction, honestly, with a brash refusal. Uh, Verse 29, I will not. Now, in an oriental patriarchal society, this is completely unheard of. It's terribly offensive. Terribly offensive. 
I mean, it would have probably evoked a slap in the face or some other form of, of immediate severe punishment on the part of the father because it was just, you just did not do that. Now, the second son, he goes to his second son, and the second son responds to the father's instructions with a very polite, I will, sir. Verse 30. Now, that word sir in the Greek is the word kurios, which you're probably familiar with. It's the word Lord. Lord, I will, Lord. And it's, it's, the, it's a very appropriate way of addressing somebody who has authority over you. And so the, the first son is very brash in his rejection. Second son, very polite. He gets the wording right. He understands the father's authority and, and says, I will go. But now notice this. So what you can see here is the first son then, the first son's the bad boy, right? He is probably an independent, color outside of the box sort of kid. <laughs> He's the one, and you know every family has one of these. He's the one that makes his father say, that, that kid is going to be the death of me. Right? Every family has at least one. Maybe all of them in your family are that way, but, you know, at least one. That kid is going to, he's going to be the death of me. Uh, every, every family. So obstinate, hard, hard-headed, insubordinate, right? Just kind of off on their own. And then the second son, the second boy is the good son. He's the obedient son. He's the dutiful one. He's the kind of son in that culture and ours. That you wanted. And so what nearly everybody who knows more than I do about these sorts of things says is, is in all probability, the first son was the younger of the two brothers and the second was the older. And the reason they say that is because the experts of the culture of this day say that the father would not have gone to the eldest son first. Because in that day, the eldest son was, was held, and I'm praying that we'll have a move of, of this sort of thing in our culture today because I'm an eldest son as well. But the eldest son was put in such high regard that the rest of the siblings really, in fact, worked for the eldest son who carried out the family business, right? And, and so the, the, the younger son would have obviously seen himself as working for his older brother, which would have made sense the father would have gone to the younger one first and then to the older one. The father would, wouldn't have gone directly to the older son. But Jesus' characterization makes sense, doesn't it? If we're talking about a younger son and an older son, from what we know even about birth order and other considerations, that firstborns generally are more serious, more dutiful, more perfectionistic. And if you have the the sad, unfortunate reality of my life of being a firstborn of two firstborns, you're borderline neurotic. And you want people's approval so desperately that you'll do anything you can to get it. And more than the other children, they typically do want their parents' approval. But this also makes sense from another parable Jesus told in Luke 15, where these themes get expanded even more about one brother, two brothers, one who is wild, a carefree spirit who asks for his inheritance early, if you remember this story, and wanders off into a distant country, leaves home and eventually loses everything because he's irresponsible and selfish. And then the older brother, there's the older brother, who stays home and is hardworking and dutiful and takes care of the family business and does his chores while his irresponsible and selfish younger brother just lives the high life. And so one brother that is irresponsible and immoral, one who is hard-looking and hard-working and committed and responsible, and it's the same here in Matthew 21, that one of these brothers is unreliable, the other is always there for the father, always willing to work, okay? And in both cases... Remember here who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the temple officials and the chief priests and the elders. And surrounding him are this ragtag group of people that just look strange and out of place when you think of this being a Messiah movement. And so Jesus is characterizing 
the chief priests and the elders, the religious and the moral people, as this older brother type. Both here and in Luke 15, the older brother, the dutiful one, the moral one, the hardworking one, he is the, the, the guy who is the characterization of moral, religious people with high standards, older brother types. And the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners who are surrounding Jesus are this kind of younger brother type characterization in Jesus' parables. And so here's the irony. I mean, this is the radical, just in-your-face irony of what this parable is teaching us. If you look there, Jesus says that it is the outsider, it is the immoral, the brash, the sinners who end up saved and who please God's heart and come into the kingdom of heaven. And it is the older sons, the good son, the moral, the religious, the committed, the self-righteous that are the ones that are lost. And of course, everybody who's listening to this parable would look at Jesus and say, that's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, that is, that is the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And that's why Jesus explains what he means, because the conclusion is so radical that he has to spell it out for them because they would not come to it on their own. In verse 31, when he says, truly, and whenever Jesus, by the way, when you're reading the Bible and Jesus, when Jesus says truly, you need to take out a pen and write it down because he, something big's coming, right? Truly. I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. What? Prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners get in first before good people and moral people. They're the quickest to respond. It's the younger brothers of the world that are more likely to respond to Jesus' message and believe in him than the older brothers. I mean, think about the parable of the prodigal son with me for just one minute. At the end of the parable, where are each of the sons? Remember the prodigal son, the one that went off away from his father, spit in his father's face, and went and ruined his inheritance and and lavish living. At the end of the parable, where is he? He's jeopardized the family in, in in the city, in the town. And where is he at the end of the parable? He's in the father's house, celebrating a feast with his dad. And then there's the older brother, the dutiful one that stayed home, And did all the right things and got his chores done. And where is he at the end of the parable? He's outside. He won't come in. And Jesus' point is just this, that immoral, irreligious people, younger brother types, the people you expect to be excluded are the ones that get in often. And the religious, the moral people, the good people, the older brother types, the people you expect to be in are often on the outside. And so let me just... (laughs) Prostitutes go in before housewives. Cheaters go in before honest business people. Corrupt politicians go in before spiritual leaders. Frat boys go in before Bible college students. The morally bankrupt go in before the well-respected. I mean, do you see how utterly ridiculous that sounds? I mean, is anybody offended by that? I mean, I think we could be. And if Jesus is right, and here's the, here's the whammy, right? If Jesus is right about this, then I just want to caution us and say that presents a huge, huge problem for us because in many ways we are a church full of older brother type people. And Jesus says it's going to be harder for us. So that's what you see here with these two brothers. Now, let's look at the difference. And why does it work this way? Okay? Why does it work this way? And the short answer is just this. The short answer is, is that your past moral record, whether good or bad, means nothing. Your pedigree, 
whether good or bad, means nothing. Your spiritual resume, whether it has a long list of accomplishments or whether there's little to speak of, means absolutely nothing. Listen, what matters, according to Jesus' parable here, is repentance. That's what makes the difference between these two boys. That's why the first gets in and the second is left out. Look at Matthew twenty-one twenty-nine. The first son immediately refuses to obey his father's instructions, doesn't he? But eventually we're told, look there, he changed his mind and he went. And then again, in Matthew twenty-one twenty-three, Jesus applies this to the crowds he's speaking to when he tells them about their experience with John the Baptist. Quote, even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe in him. And that phrase, change your mind, is literally the Greek word that we use for repentance. What matters is repentance. The difference between heaven and hell is repentance. It's not your past, not even your, your present performance. Good people don't go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That's not how it works. What matters is repentance. And so what do we mean by that then? Well, first, this is what it's not. It's not just saying you're sorry, Right? We're disciplining our kids in this, right? Because we do, I mean, I don't, you know, parenting, this is parenting. For the 900th time, uh, the, the towel is still on the floor after you take a shower, right? Every day we go through this. You know, or, and my clothes stay on the floor and my wife goes through, the, through it with me too, but, you know, right? Can you, son, your towel's on the floor. I'm sorry. No, that doesn't count. That's not repentance, Saying you're sorry doesn't count. Repentance is not giving some vague nod to the fact that you're a sinner as an excuse for why you remain rude and lazy. Right? I mean, do you see that? What is repentance? The old catechisms and confessions of faith talk about repentance as being these three things. Feeling sorry for your sin, hating it, and forsaking it. That's repentance. To repent means to change. To change directions. The first son said no, And then he changed his no to a yes, and he went and did what his father said, negating the original no. The no became a yes. He wasn't going, then he changed his mind, and he went. And that's really helpful in understanding what the Bible means by repentance because we could boil it down to this, and I think this is helpful to do this. When we talk about repentance, repentance means you say out loud to whoever you need to, you say, I was wrong, and you change your behavior accordingly. That's repentance. Now, there's all kinds of substitutes for this. There's denial. What? I didn't, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do, you know. There's blame shifting. Well, it's not, it wasn't me. It was, I mean, I've told, I've told you this story. I should tell this story. The classic story of blame shifting. My daughter, uh, one day, not a long time ago now, decided to cut her own hair. And so we caught her in the act. Uh, Abby, who cut your hair? Canaan did, mommy. So Ashley calls Canaan into the room. Canaan, did you cut Abby's hair? No, no, I didn't cut I, Abigail, who cut your hair? Isaac did, Mommy. That's number two. Isaac, did you cut Abby's hair? No, Mommy, I didn't cut her hair. Abigail, who cut your hair? She's run out of options at this point. Right, Mommy? I mean, this is literally, Mommy, there were squirrels. <laughs> And they were looking for nuts. And they just chumped off my hair. Right? Blame shifting. Right? Defensiveness and criticism of others to kind of 
deflect away from myself. There's all kinds of ways that we can substitute for repentance. But repentance is boiled down to this. It means I was wrong. You say, I was wrong, and you change your behavior accordingly. We were watching the old Clash of the Titans, not the cool version, um, because my kids aren't ready for that, but the old, like, 1980s Harry Hamlin, like, like awesome version when you were a kid, you know, when I was, right? And and there's this one scene where the goddess Thetis, the, one of, the, one of the, the Andromeda's mother is boasting of Andromeda's beauty, and she says she's even more beautiful than the goddess, and then all of a sudden the... the the statue of the goddess in the temple they're in crumbles to the ground and this face pops up on the statue's face and begins to speak. And she's very upset that the, the beauty of this girl has been compared to her beauty. And she says, she uses these words, she says, you will repent of your boast. And I thought, wow, you know, we don't use the word that way anymore. But that, that's it. That's, that sounds strange because we're not used to thinking of things that way. But you will repent of your boast. What does that mean? It means you will say, I was wrong. And so how many times I just begin to think in conversation, probably more in your head, when you're driving the car and observing other people's driving, how many times do you think or even say out loud, I'm right, you're wrong? You know, in many ways, this is what we're all out to prove. This is what our hearts long for. Repentance means you stop long enough to consider whether there is actually true. <laughs> and you open yourself up to the possibility of changing your position to the opposite. A person who's really beginning to understand repentance, uh, what the Bible means by it, by sin and repentance is just as likely to say, you know, you're right. I'm wrong. And let me set it up for you this way. Repentance means that when you and when you and Jesus disagree about something, when you and Jesus disagree about something, you go with his evaluation and not your own. Even if there's an initial no, like this first son, right? No. He says no. Even if there's an initial no, the fact that you and Jesus disagree should really begin to eat at you and make you think really hard. And when you disagree with him, don't say no. Say yes to him and no to yourself. Because, after all, he is the one who is in authority over you. He is your king. And Jesus has obviously begun to really challenge these guys. This is what's happening with the chief priests and the elders. This is what they couldn't do. Jesus is challenging their theological assumptions, and they disagree. They, they just completely disagree with his tactics and his teaching. But instead of bowing their knees to him, they challenge him. They want to know by what authority does he do these things and who gave him that authority. You see, they won't change. They're convinced that they're right and he's wrong. And Jesus, Jesus points them to John the Baptist and he says, if John truly was from heaven and if what he was doing was from God, then John's ministry is before the one who would come, who would be the long-awaited king, the Messiah who is now here, and I am he. I am your king. I am God in the flesh. And when you disagree with God in the flesh, can I just suggest something? When you disagree with God in the flesh, there's really only one thing to do, and that's to repent. Right? You know? And so if you follow Jesus sincerely, if you follow him sincerely, then over and over again you're going to come to these moments when you read something in the Bible or you hear a sermon that makes you think long enough that you come to the conclusion, I really, I disagree with Jesus here, or I don't like what he's teaching here, or there's, there's a disconnect between what he says and the way I'm living my life, and it's clear you're being disobedient. And in that moment, in that moment you have a choice. And what Jesus says is the only way to live in the kingdom of heaven and experience its power is when that happens, you immediately do whatever you have to do to bring your life in line with his authority. That's what it means to have a king and to live under his authority. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that he's brought, bought you and that you are no longer your own. Your own. He owns you. Now, so what, 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 
what Jesus is going after here is this idea of repentance. And here's why this is so important, okay? Because uh, we've got to get a little deeper into this. And it's just this. The message of the gospel is that we are all sinners and deserve the wrath and curse of God. Isaiah says it this way. He says, we're all like sheep that have gone astray. We've all turned our own way, right? You've read that, I'm sure, at some point. That we're all trying to live independently of God. We're all doing, you know, we're all doing what we want to do. And all we're doing is making a big mess of things, the Bible says. And the only way to undo all of that and to live in the kingdom of heaven and experience its power and blessing is you have to repent. You have to admit you were wrong. You have to bow your knees to Jesus and ask him to rescue you and to begin to undo the mess that you've made. That's repentance and faith. Now watch this. Watch this. If you're a prostitute or a tax collector or some other kind of notorious sinner and your sin is so public that everybody knows about it and you can't pretend to be something you're not, then this is obvious to you. I mean, the people that are following Jesus that he's, these, he characterizes as tax collectors and prostitutes, they have no pretense of being good or moral or right. They know they're, they know they're wrong. Everybody knows they're wrong. They live overwhelmed with guilt and shame. And so for them to admit they're wrong, I mean, everybody knows they're wrong. But if you're good, and if you're moral, and if you're committed, if you're religious, if your kids are well-behaved, if you have a good reputation and people like you, you see, the seduction of that is it's very easy to begin to say, repent for what? I mean, I'm, I'm doing the right things. And here's where we need to see what Jesus is really trying, trying to teach us, that we need to repent not just for our sins and for the bad things in our lives, but follow me on this, that what Jesus wants us to see is that in order to come into the kingdom, we also have to repent of our righteousness. Now, what could that possibly mean? The fundamental problem of our hearts is that we hate grace. There's a part of our hearts, what the Bible calls our sin nature or our flesh, and what it's doing is it's constantly rejecting grace and trying to bring us back under the law, trying to bring us back into a system where we're working salvation out for ourselves. And that's why we sing a song like um, the song we sing, a song of repentance. The song of repentance we sing today. Why would we sing that song as a song of repentance? Because what does it say? Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my tears no respite know? Could, could, you know could, my, could my tears forever flow? These for sin cannot atone, right? What does it say? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross. I, naked. Come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. What are we confessing? We are, we are confessing, we are repenting of ever thinking that we could come to him with anything that would make him look at us and accept us. And you see, there's, we're constantly being driven back into the law by our sin nature. And this is where, on the one hand, a guilty conscience comes from. And if you really struggle with guilt, it's because you think, you're, you still think you're saved by good works. You do. And you've not done them, and that's where the guilt comes from. And not, can I pray for me in this? I have prayer cards. I told this story this week to Jonathan and some others. I have prayer cards where I, I write people's names down, and I go through on a weekly basis, and I pray for them. And this is, this is the reality of my life, and I think maybe you can, some of you can identify with this. I'll pull those prayer cards out, and I'll see so-and-so's name on there, and I can't even pray because all I can think of is how I've let that person down and not done what they need me to do, and I feel so full of guilt I can't even get around to pray for that person. Anybody else live there like that? I mean, just... Everything is a self-condemnation. Everything just comes in, and you can't even over... That's where that guilty conscience comes from, because I think I've got to do good works, and I've not done them. And it's also where self-righteousness comes from. Self-righteous people think it's good works that save them, and 
They're sure they've done them, and everybody else hasn't. And that's where the self-righteousness comes from. So, so you see, there's this sin underneath all of our sins, that even all of our good works, that is, that we all, every one of us, we hate the idea. We hate the idea that we are sinners saved by grace. We want to perform. We want to do the work. Like the rich young ruler last week, we want to know what good work, what good deed we must do to save ourselves. And so here's what happens. We try to be good or moral, but it's just a strategy for avoiding grace. We don't want to have to accept we can't do it on our own. We want to pay the bill ourselves. And if that's what you're doing, and that's what Jesus is indicting the religious leaders and the older brother in this story in Luke 15 with doing, if that's what you're doing, can you see you're running from Jesus and trying to avoid him by being good enough that you don't need him? And the only thing, if that's you, then the only thing you can never do is admit that you were wrong. You see that? Because... Because if you dare to admit that you're wrong, then the whole house of cards begins to tumble down. The one thing you can't do is say, I was wrong. I screwed up. It was my fault. You can't do that because your whole life, your whole emotional reality is built on the presumption that you're right, that you've done well, that you've earned the A, and you need that A because without it, you have no value. You're not right. You think the love and the acceptance of God is dependent upon your grade and to admit that you were wrong would verify what you're already afraid is true, that you're not worthy of God's love and acceptance. (laughs) But here's the irony. The irony is that admitting you're wrong is the only doorway to really experiencing God's love and acceptance and embracing the provision of Jesus Christ as a savior of sinners. To know that you're wrong and he loves you is so much better than thinking he loves you because you're right. I I mean, do you know that? I mean, to know that you're wrong and you've blown it and he loves you as much as he does is so much better than thinking that he loves you because you're good and sweet and kind and neat. This is going to sound harsh, but God doesn't just love good people. That assumes there are good people for him to love. And we've got to make sense of Romans 3.10 that says there are none righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. And so the first step to entering the kingdom of heaven is to repent of trying to be righteous on your own, to admit God is right about you, that the cross is the final verdict of your life, and that no matter how good or moral you might be at the end of all of your good works, you need a Savior. And so to repent means you stop doing, it doesn't mean you stop doing good works, it means you stop doing them to build a spiritual resume. And that's what's being revealed in this parable, that only people who admit they've blown it and look to Jesus to save them get in. And that's hard, that's hard for elder brother types like me, but it's a no-brainer for prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. And see, that's why they get in first. Because the sin and unbelief underneath moral, morality and religion is so much harder to see. You don't know it's there. It's hard to get at. And so we've got to end by just this then. How do we find the courage then to surrender to the grace of God and repent even of our righteousness? How do you stop working and striving to build a spiritual resume? Or how do you find the courage to believe if you're a younger brother type that God is merciful enough to love and accept someone who's sinned as boldly as you have? And the answer here, in the context, and here's where we've got to get to the context of this passage, is that you have to see Jesus Christ as the new temple. You have to see Jesus as the new temple. Now, and this is what's happening. They're debating, they're arguing over the temple. They're in the temple mount, and they're arguing about the temple, and Jesus is making a claim here. Now, why do people build temples? They're trying to get close to God. Right? They're trying to build a home for the God they worship and to come and dwell in so they can come and worship him and offer sacrifices to him and 
and get near to him. And for millennia, people have built temples because of just this. We need to feel like God is near and that he's paying attention to us and that we can find him if we need him. We can have access to him when we need it. And for the Jews of Jesus' day, the temple was the dwelling place of Yahweh. It was God's home on the earth. And thus it was the center of their political, national, religious life. The temple was the place a Jew would go to worship God and to sacrifice and to meet with him. And if you came into Jerusalem, as Jesus did here at the beginning of Matthew 21, the first thing you would see is you would see the Temple Mount rising up out of the city. And on top of the temple, gleaming in the sun, would be this temple, uh, the sign that Israel was God's chosen people and that he had come to dwell among them, the promise that he had come near to them. And that's why these guys get so crazy when Jesus starts talking about destroying the temple. I mean, the first thing Jesus does when he comes into Jerusalem is he goes into the temple, and you remember the story? He begins to throw people out and overturn the tables and the money changers and all these things. And the heading in your Bible of that particular passage in Matthew 21 probably says something like the cleansing of the temple. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus wasn't cleansing the temple. He was destroying the temple. He was there. He was symbolically destroying the temple. He was shutting it down. And that's why they come to him and say, what right do you have to do these things? By what authority do you act? That's what they want to know. And Jesus, again, in verses 24 and 25, he points to the ministry of John the Baptist. And then he comes back to John later in verse 32. And Jesus understands his authority in light of John's ministry, specifically his baptism. And you remember earlier in Matthew, Jesus has come down to the Jordan River where John is baptizing. And John baptizes Jesus as a symbol of the mantle of leadership in this new movement called the kingdom of heaven, passing from John to Jesus, who would ultimately give his life uh, to save those who believe in him. And in, the, in his question to the religious leaders, Jesus implicitly implies that it is baptism was from heaven or sanctioned by heaven. In other words, he says John was fulfilling a specific role within history. He was preparing the way for the one who would come. And don't you love the words in Matthew 3 in our call to worship? Whose sandals he was not worthy to carry. The one who would baptize with fire. And Jesus says, I am he. This one that would come, this Messiah, God in the flesh. And the implication is just this. If God has come and walked in flesh, then we don't have to go to a temple anymore to meet with him. And Jesus, he came down and walked among us. Jesus came into the world to live a life, live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we should have died. He is both our righteousness and our sacrifice. And through his obedient life and death on the cross, he made it possible for us to draw near to God and to have God draw near to us. We don't go to a temple to sacrifice to God anymore. Jesus sacrificed his own body. And now Hebrews tells us that we come boldly into God's presence, confident in our standing before him. And that we, we, don't, we don't go to a temple anymore. What the Bible says is, is because Jesus has purchased you and he has sent the Holy Spirit into your life, because the Holy Spirit has come through the work of Christ, we don't go to temples anymore. We are temples. I mean, we are the temple. He has come so close that now he resides inside of us. We don't have to go to a building and offer a sacrifice. He now lives in us because of what Jesus has done. And that completely deconstructs the idea that it's your moral achievements that get you access to God. Your performance doesn't matter at all, good or bad. What matters is if you've put your faith in him. If you are like the first brother, then, in this parable, that's good news. Good news for you. Because no matter how badly you've blown it, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover your sins. You need a Savior. 
Jesus Christ is that Savior. Repent of your sin and come to him. But let me just finish by saying this. If you are like the older brother, it's good news for you too. Don't let your moral accomplishments make you blind to all the selfishness and sin that's underneath even the best of your works. You need a Savior too. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. Repent of your righteousness and come to him. See, that's the message of the parable. He's reaching out to these men and saying, whoever you are, the issue's not what you've done or what you haven't done. The issue is, are you willing to say, I was wrong? And if you are, come to me. And all that I am doing, all the resources of the kingdom of heaven can be yours. You can be forgiven of your sins. And you can come, no longer going to a temple, but you can become a temple of the Holy Spirit where God resides and dwells within you. That is the promise of the gospel. So repent and come to him. Let's pray as we prepare to come to this table together this morning to celebrate the very things we speak of. Lord Jesus, these, these, uh, these words, these stories of yours blow our categories. Uh, and so we really need you to help us to understand these things you're trying to teach us because they're hard to understand. Uh, we're so indoctrinated, we're so used to the idea that it is good, moral, um, imagine what it means that tax collectors and sinners get into the kingdom of heaven before uh, the righteous and the religious. So, Lord Jesus, we need the Spirit. We need the illumination of the Spirit to come and to, uh, to convince us of truth so that, like the brother in the story, we too might change our mind. And we know, as the Scripture says, that both faith and repentance are gifts from your hand, that you give them. They're not works that we can accomplish on our own. You must give them to us, and so I pray that you would grace us this morning as we come to celebrate this meal together with the gifts of faith and repentance. And that through uh, that, we might bear fruit in keeping with repentance, as John said, that you might be glorified in us as a people, we pray. Amen. Here's what makes me marvel. Every other king the world has ever known has has demanded unquestioned fidelity and obedience, but not this king. He was the one who, for the disobedient, gave his own life. I mean, that's, that's why that phrase, amazing love, how can it be? And, and so we serve a king and we live in a kingdom where the only thing that is required of us is the one thing that is the hardest thing, and that is to be able to stand and say, I have nothing. I am nothing. I can do nothing. I have nothing. Uh, Jesus, accept me. And if uh, you have the grace to do that, if you come and you partake of his body and blood and say in that act, I have nothing, Jesus, you are everything, then in your nothingness he brings his everything. And that is the promise of the benediction, that for those of us who have found the grace to repent and follow, these are the words of God that reverberate over our lives as he promises to show us love and favor and kindness, uh, even to the least deserving. So, Whether you are an elder brother type or a younger brother type, uh, behold the promise of God in this benediction, which is yours if your faith is in Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.